Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit betterhelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp H-E-L-P. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. Since 2013, Bombas has donated over 100 million socks, underwear, and T-shirts to those facing homelessness. If we counted those on air, this ad would last over 1,157 days. But if we counted the time it takes to make a donation possible, it would take just a few clicks. Because every time you make a purchase, Bombas donates an item to someone who needs it. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST, code ACAST. Welcome to Season 4, Episode 45 of They Walk Among Us, a podcast dedicated to UK true crime. This is part one of a two-part case, with the second instalment available next week. Listener caution is advised, as this episode contains adult themes and descriptions that some listeners may find distressing. There are two sides to every coin, like there are two sides to every story. A headless body is found in the undergrowth of a natural beauty spot in Devon, Police soon find the culprit who openly admits that he carried out the killing. However, not everything is as it seems. Or perhaps it is. Saturday, September 3rd, 1983. Near the outskirts of Exeter, plumber Colin Marshall pulled over his Ford Escort station wagon after travelling on the A380. Marshall looked out onto the dense forest around Holden Hills. He jumped out of his car and headed towards a clearing. He was aware of a spot, enclosed by towering trees, which overlooks the picturesque X Valley to the north and Torquay to the south. In what Marshall hoped would simply be a brief stop before he picked up his wife and kids after work, he found a clearing, somewhere private, to relieve himself. But he realised their impressions in the grass, almost as if someone had recently walked this very journey. Gazing at the fir trees and fallen branches on the forest floor, 
he noticed something unusual. His discovery was one of mere chance. He saw what he later described as looking like a soggy mattress. Upon further inspection, Marshall realised part of the mass he was looking at appeared to be the back of a human foot in a state of decomposition. He soon realised it was a body. The decay was so severe that Colin Marshall was unsure of the sex of the person who had died. Dressed in a t-shirt and shorts, the body was lying in the fetal position. He ran back to his car and after finding a phone box, the discovery was reported to the police. The body was found in dense undergrowth at the end of a forest drive, closed to the public but still a popular spot for courting couples. Uh, we're at a complete loss at this present time. We're just hoping that someone will recognise the description on the radio or television or in the newspapers and come forward and give us some idea. Detective Inspector Geoffrey Henthorne from the Devon and Cornwall Constabulary was the first officer to assess the scene. He quickly realised that although the body seemed intact, it was missing one vital piece. The head. The remains were taken to Exeter Hospital, where a post-mortem was completed. Dr Robert Kellett undertook an autopsy and confirmed the victim was female. The body was petite, just over five feet, late teens to late twenties, and there was no evidence she had given birth. No signs of sexual assault. The doctor concluded that the head had been removed at the shoulders either with an axe or a cleaver, though that did not appear to be the cause of death. The body had shotgun wounds. They were caused by tiny fragments of metal, almost like shrapnel. The woman, dressed only in shorts and a T-shirt, was killed by at least two shots from some kind of firearm. A ballistics expert is now trying to identify the kind of weapon used. The bullet fragments found in the victim's chest were scattered into many pieces, but after a reconstruction, experts later identified that they were fired from a Marlin 30-30 caliber hunting rifle. There were also corresponding holes in the victim's clothing, which suggested she was wearing the same t-shirt and shorts when she had been killed. At the time, Dr. Kellett believed that the individual had died around two weeks earlier. However, this conclusion was not exact. He admitted that due to the condition of the body, it had been incredibly difficult to assess. This was just a best guess. The following day, forensic officers carried out a fingertip search of the surrounding area. There were no weapons or bullets from a gun used to kill the victim. However, they did find four human teeth, along with some fingernails painted in dark red nail polish that almost appeared purple. As the search was underway, Colin Marshall was questioned extensively by the police, as he was the one who found the body, though was subsequently ruled out as a potential suspect. News of the discovery spread fast with the national media quick to report on what they called the case of the headless corpse. In an appeal to the public, police offered up information about the discovery. They asked the families of any missing women who matched the murdered woman's description to please get in touch. 
further analysis of the clothing revealed that the shorts the victim was wearing had been purchased in San Francisco from a wholesaler in New York. This perhaps meant the victim could have travelled to America or possibly was American. The faint outline of a camel was pictured on her t-shirt, with some writing in French and Arabic. It was believed the item of clothing was produced in Morocco. Printed on the front in faded font, it read, Souvenir du Maroc. This finding led the media to believe that the individual may have been a foreign national and due to the brutal nature of the death was executed with the head removed to avoid identification. Another theory suggested by reporters was the mutilation of the body indicated that the victim was part of the drugs trade and this could have been some form of retribution. The authorities were keeping an open mind to all possibilities. Cheryl Richardson, a resident of West Wickham in Buckinghamshire, had been following the news. When she heard about the clothing worn by the victim, she was almost sure she knew who it was. Cheryl had not seen her friend Monica in some time, five months to be exact. Although Monica's husband Michael insisted that his wife had left for America following an acrimonious separation, this never sat right with Cheryl. Cheryl was a friend to the couple. She had been helping Michael around the home after his wife was said to have left. Monica had not made contact since. After reporting her suspicions to the police, an officer visited the home and took some details. Cheryl explained that Monica had purchased a t-shirt just like the one found on the victim the previous summer, and Monica was American. This raised the suspicions of the police and detectives were again dispatched to Cheryl's home as they had more questions. She told them that Monica had well-manicured fingernails, describing the colour she often wore, a deep red, almost purple. Cheryl's husband Richard was asked if he had noticed anything suspicious. Was Monica's husband exhibiting behaviour out of the ordinary? Richard told the police that Michael had hired a van to take some rubbish to the tip that month, but could not think of anything else that might indicate that Monica's husband was involved. Nothing sprang to mind. When detectives turned their focus again to Cheryl, she looked as though she had something to say. She told officers that a few days earlier, Monica's husband had admitted to killing his wife. Michael always exaggerated, sometimes flat-out lied, so Cheryl wasn't sure what to believe. He said to me, I've killed Monica. I just wouldn't accept it. I asked him if he was joking. He said, no, I'm not joking. And he told me that she was in the sauna and she was thinking. On Monday, September 12, 1983, 33-year-old Michael Henry Maxwell Telling was brought before Court No. 5 of Wanford Magistrates. He had arrived at court in an unmarked police car, entering the building with a grey sheet draped over his head. 
during the short proceedings which lasted less than ten minutes, Telling was handcuffed to a police officer, and he said little. His arrest and subsequent appearance in court came after the body of his wife was found near the outskirts of Exeter nine days earlier. The head was discovered 150 miles away on the property where Telling lived, Lambourne House near West Wickham in Buckinghamshire. Telling was charged with the murder of his wife, 27-year-old Monica Elizabeth Zumsteg, sometime between March 27th and September 4th, 1983. Telling was told he would remain in custody. Monica Zumsteg was born November 24th, 1956 to parents Louis and Elsa. Raised alongside two younger siblings, she was a high achiever, competitive, articulate, with her family later honestly describing her as opinionated and perhaps stubborn, much like her father. Her childhood was not without its problems. Her father was an alcoholic, quick to anger with a wicked tongue. He often focused his frustrations on his eldest daughter, mostly verbal, occasionally physical. Monica's mother became her protector, and while Elsa knew the hurt her husband caused and daydreamed about leaving, she did everything she could to keep her family together. Monica graduated from Half Moon Bay High School during the summer of 1974 and then went on to study at the College of San Mateo. She focused on journalism, though her interest waned when the allure of a new vocation and financial independence drew her towards taking on a job rather than concentrating on her bachelor's degree. To support her studies, she found employment as a computer terminal operator, quickly working her way up the ranks. She took to her role quickly. Operating a computer came naturally to her. Following the advice of colleagues, after announcing her career intentions to be a senior manager at a company like IBM, she took on the role of a field service representative, to understand the day-to-day problems businesses face with their IT solutions. She worked in San Francisco for a company that owned a chain of automotive dealerships, installing computers in their sales forecourt, teaching staff how to use the computer system. Monica was quickly promoted and moved to Sacramento. It was six months later when she would be introduced to her future husband, Michael, following a chance meeting between him and her parents during 1980. The Englishman had been on a trip abroad, shopping for a motorcycle. The couple were married a few years later. Monica's parents, Louis and Elsa Zumsteg, who lived in Santa Rosa, California, had made numerous attempts to make contact with their daughter since her disappearance five months earlier. They discovered Monica was dead after a British journalist rang asking for comment. Their daughter's body was returned to America and a funeral was held during December 1983. Monica was buried at Cavalry Cemetery in Santa Rosa. Michael Telling, a CB radio and motorbike fanatic, was part of the Vesti family, 
the Vestis were one of Britain's wealthiest families. They made their sizeable fortune through the meat industry. Their business was reportedly valued at the time to be in the region of $900 million across the 25 companies who operated in nearly 30 countries. Telling received an income from a family trust fund with his status marked as non-employed in the court paperwork. During court proceedings, it was divulged that Telling had not been employed since 1977. Telling was a diabetic, though was often careless, leading to stays in the hospital. Most of the money he received through his trust fund, Telling aimlessly spent on radios, guns, cars and motorbikes. After he had used them a handful of times, they sat collecting dust on the grounds of his home. Telling knew how to spend his family's money, even while on remand. From Exeter Prison, he ordered takeaway steak and red wine from a local restaurant, a pleasure then afforded to prisoners who had the means. Along with the judge, Mr Justice Sheldon, the 12 jurors at Exeter Crown Court were informed that Michael Telling had secreted away the head of his wife in the boot of a car at their former marital home. Telling continued to deny that he murdered Monica, however he admitted manslaughter on the grounds of diminished responsibility, a plea that was rejected by the Crown. The defendant sat in the dock, smartly dressed in a pinstripe suit with reams of paperwork that he carried around in a Marks and Spencer carrier bag. He did not testify in his own defence. Alan Rawley QC acting for the Crown outlined the case against Michael Telling and junior counsel Paul Dunkles read several witness statements which included the circumstances in which Monica's headless body was found. Monica Zumsteg had been missing for some time and after a considerable amount of publicity, a friend of Michael Telling's Cheryl Richardson came forward to police as she believed that Monica had died under suspicious circumstances. Cheryl told the court that Telling admitted to the crime while they were out grocery shopping together, although she thought he was joking. When they got home, the TV was on and it mentioned that a body had been found in a forest on the outskirts of Exeter. Telling quickly ran to the bathroom to be sick. Cheryl Richardson remained suspicious, but it was not until she heard the public appeal describing what the victim was wearing, which inspired her to contact the police. Michael Telling admitted to officers that he had shot his wife in the living room of their home on March 29, 1983. The two had been arguing about him returning to a psychiatric hospital for treatment. On March the 28th last year, another of the Telling's friends, Joe Stennings, went out with them for the evening. The next day, Michael Telling was due to go into a psychiatric hospital. Mr Stennings remembers that Monica and Michael started arguing about that hospital appointment. I had the definite impression that he didn't want to go anywhere but she she wanted him to go equally as badly it's, it appeared to me to get his mind sorted out and she referred to him the odd times being a nut 
Joe Stennings left them in the early hours of the morning. A few hours later, when the Tellings woke up, they continued the argument about the hospital appointment. They were shouting at each other, and Michael Telling picked up a rifle and shot his wife three times. One bullet hit her in the neck, the other two in the chest. A psychiatrist... After Monica was shot, Michael Telling moved his wife's body between the rooms in the house. He burned her passport and personal paperwork. The body was at first stored in a bedroom which Telling frequently visited. He continued to talk to Monica's body. However, as there was no lock on the bedroom door, and the house often received visitors, a week later Telling moved the body to an area of the home that was previously a summer house. It was in the process of being converted into a sauna. Concealed in a cubicle of the half-built sauna is where Monica's body stayed for five months throughout the summer, until the decorators were due and the body needed to be moved. This wasn't something Telling planned for. The Vesti family had purchased the property for Telling and his wife, carrying out building work as and when it was needed. Telling would later say, I would have preferred to leave her where she was or in a graveyard. I did not want to throw her in a river. I knew of a forest close to Exeter which is a very attractive spot and I decided to leave her there for the time being. On September 1st, 1983, Telling had rented a van asking his friend Richard Richardson to drive him there to collect it. He told Richardson that he needed to transport a large amount of rubbish to the tip. Under the cover of darkness, he carried his wife's decomposing body to the van. Telling drove nearly several hundred miles to the secluded spot in the West Country. There he dumped the body in the gorse. So, not to be parted from her completely, he removed her head with an axe. He knew the area well as he had lived there previously with his first wife. Before driving to Devon, he had tried to dig up the earth in several local graveyards. However, the summer sun had made the ground too hard to penetrate. At some point on the way home, Telling made sure to stop and wash his hands and had a cup of coffee. The rifle used in the killing was then dismantled and discarded over several sites that included rubbish bins and by the side of the road. Telling used Monica's bank card throughout the period in which she was thought to have travelled to America. By the time Michael Telling was returning a freshly cleaned van to the rental agency, Colin Marshall would stumble across Monica's body. While in his cell at the High Wycombe police station, through streams of tears, Michael Telling said to officers, I want to see my dogs. They're inside the house. I suppose I shall be in prison for 30, 40, 50 years. He then said, I did it. Asked what he meant, Telling replied, Murdered my wife. For around six hours after his arrest, Telling sat on the floor of his prison cell. Although he was not being questioned, he just talked and talked. Detective Constable Anthony Hartley sat outside never interrupting, making notes on Telling's comments. As Telling sat cross-legged on the floor chain-smoking, 
it seemed as though he was making several brief rambling sermons to an invisible congregation about a stormy marriage in which the couple had frequent, sometimes violent arguments. While incoherent in places, telling alleged that his wife was an alcoholic who took drugs, heroin, cocaine and marijuana. She also apparently physically attacked him and taunted him about his mental health issues. Telling also alleged that his wife had slept with other men and women while the couple were married. He claimed to have walked in on his wife in a compromising position with another woman who she was with while on a holiday abroad. These claims were widely repeated in the media. The Tullings had married in November 1981, but right from the start, Monica taunted Michael Tulling about his lack of sexual prowess. She said he was physically inadequate. There's been a lot of evidence in the court case uh, about Monica's lesbian tendencies, the fact that she was bisexual and also that um, she um, perhaps, so we say, had a lot of other men. Did you ever see? In his comments to police... Michael Telling spoke of how his wife used to say he was only good for his money. He further claimed that his wife assaulted him. He could not endure her behaviour any longer, and he just snapped. Telling admitted to police that he killed Monica, a fact not disputed by his counsel at trial. Towards the end of March 1983, after a trip to Australia, Telling took his wife's life with a firearm. The two had been arguing with Monica telling her husband he should get psychiatric treatment. Becoming frustrated, Telling fetched the Marlin 3030 hunting rifle from another room in the house. He told police, She came charging towards me. I thought she was going to attack me, so I picked up the rifle and shot her. I was very confused in my mind. I have no clear idea why I shot her. I went into the kitchen too distressed to do anything. I sat down for the next two hours or so. I just shook and cried. I kept looking at her for a day and a half and then I moved her to the bedroom. He added, I kissed her and said I was sorry. I kept her in the house for about a week and went to look at her often. Telling went on to describe how he made attempts to bury the body then remove the head before returning home. I thought that if the body was not discovered, I could collect it and bury her decently at home. I wanted her to be with me at all times. I really loved Monica. I never wanted to kill her. If only she had stopped going on at me, this might never have happened. Even after she died, I wanted her to be with me. A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. 
Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. How would you like to look five years younger? In a clinical study, people that had volume added with Juvederm Voluma XC in the cheeks perceived themselves as looking five years younger at six months after treatment. Look younger, feel like you. Add volume for lift and contour in the cheeks with Juvederm Voluma XC. Reverse signs of aging by adding volume to smooth laugh lines with Juvederm Volure XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. This episode of They Walk Among Us is brought to you in association with Centair. Ever entered a seemingly perfect space only to feel like something was missing? That's where Centair comes in. With over three decades of experience, Centair leads the scent marketing industry, scenting resorts, retail outlets, event spaces and more, partnering with major brands like Westin Hotels and Snap Fitness. Chances are you've already encountered their fragrances firsthand. And now Centair is offering you a luxury fragrance experience in the comfort of your home. Visit Centair.com to explore their online store and infuse your spaces with unforgettable scents. Centair diffusers are sleek and fill your space with vivid fragrance for up to 300 hours. And the Centair app lets you schedule your fragrance and control your intensity right from your phone. What's more, all of Centair's more than 60 fragrances are phthalate-free, cruelty-free, safe for families and EcoVad is certified sustainable. Differentiate your space with scent. Try luxury home fragrance trusted by the pros by going to Centair.com and using promo code Among Us for an extra 25% off your first order. That's promo code Among Us for an extra 25% off your first order at Centair.com. Alan Rawley QC told the seven men and five women of the jury that after placing his wife's body in the vehicle, telling Pack the van with a spade, a garden fork, a tent and sleeping bag to make it appear as though he was going camping. Following his arrest, Inspector Geoffrey Henthorne asked Telling if he wanted to say anything. Telling replied, I think you know what I've done. After providing the details of the crime, Telling seemed preoccupied with something else entirely. He told the inspector, There. I have confessed. I knew you would want a confession. Would you promise to look after my dogs? 
After a brief break, Tulling again spoke to Inspector Henthorne and offered up the precise location of the missing body part. It's the whole head, he said. I did not do anything to the head. I could not. As Tulling continued to be questioned, the inspector asked why he cut off Monica's head. I did not want to dump it. I did not want to do anything at all. I could not stop. You would have identified it anyhow. I did not want to take the clothing off her either. She did not have much on. Telling then admitted that he had taken Monica's body to a secluded clearing in Devon before returning home with his wife's head wrapped in a plastic bag. When asked about how he navigated the terrain with a body, he replied fiercely, would not despoil the countryside. I'm not a vandal. After the crime, Telling continued his life as usual, insisting to friends and family that his wife had left him and moved to America. He hired a detective to track her down, knowing full well that the investigator would come back empty-handed. He even had a new security system installed in the house, which he told friends was to protect him in case there were any reprisals from his wife and her family. Before killing Monica, Telling went to stay with his mother in Sydney, Australia, at that point almost certain that he was going to file for divorce. However, he returned to England. When asked why, he said, There were 101 reasons. I cannot really explain. I walked out and I was back again in Australia. I wish I'd stayed there. She just kept pushing me. I just snapped in the end. I don't mean just nagging. She was horrible in most ways. But it does not justify killing. What could justify killing? Addressing the court, Alan Rawley QC questioned Telling's claim that he was not responsible for his actions. Rawley said, He kept the body in the most bizarre circumstances for five months. Is this the action of a man who was not in his right mind, or is it the action of a man who knows perfectly well that the disposal of a body is one of the most difficult things that a human being has to do? In a surprising comment, speaking about Telling's wife, a woman who had been shot to death and then had her head cut off, the prosecutor said, It seems she was, to put it no higher, a rather difficult woman. It seems that she did use drugs. It seems that she was bisexual. And it seems that she did belittle him. Cheryl Richardson's husband, Richard Richardson, an out-of-work agricultural engineer, was a friend to Telling, a friendship that formed over their mutual love of CB radio. Michael Telling had told his new friend that he worked for the government, unable to go into the details as he did not want to breach the Official Secrets Act. In court, Richardson spoke about Telling's wife and said, She was in some ways a nice person. In others, a very, very vindictive, nasty person. Telling worshipped the ground she walked on, Richardson said. When she turned nasty, I mean, uh, all I wanted to do was just get a hold of him and and thump hell out of him because he just 
Oh, Monica, don't talk like that. And then start kissing her hand, you know. He'd pick her hand up and he'd kiss it all the way up to the elbow. Then he'd hold her head and he'd kiss her head. Oh, and I wanted to just take him outside and knock the stuffing out of him and say to him, belt her across the mouth. But he couldn't, you know, because she'd ring, uh, run off for the police, you know. In Richardson's statement to the court, he had described Monica as well-spoken and everything a man could want in a woman when her husband was not around. Richard Richardson told the court that on September 3rd he helped telling dispose of some bags of household waste at a local rubbish tip. From what he could recall, the rubbish they discarded included some paraffin heaters and several full plastic bags. They cleaned the van afterwards, and Richard Richardson returned back to Telling's home. This was the same van that Telling had used to transport Monica's body. When they retired to the living room, Richardson noticed a stain on the carpet. When Telling realised what his friend had seen, he remarked that he had knocked over a plant and tried unsuccessfully to clean it up. Unaware that this was the exact spot where Telling shot his wife, Richardson later helped a cleaning company gain access to the home to remove the stain. The witness said of the defendant that he was a kind and gentle man, with Richardson remarking that he could not have tolerated for a week the taunts his friend received from his wife. The trial focused more on Monica Zumsteg's behaviour than whether or not her husband was guilty of murder. Richardson alleged that Monica was in the habit of taking drugs and sleeping with others outside of her marriage. Monica's extroverted nature had also been addressed by Richardson's wife Cheryl, who testified that she was propositioned by Monica. The two were out drinking in a pub together, and Cheryl noticed a sex aid in Monica's handbag. Trying to hide what she had seen, Monica saw Cheryl's reaction. She allegedly said to her, If I screw you, you would never want another man. Cheryl Richardson was later interviewed. She made no secret that she was a lesbian and that she took girlfriends home to the house when Michael was present and Michael was ordered to sleep in the spare bedroom while she took her girlfriends into the main bedroom. She said that Michael was useless, he couldn't make love and she could never, she doesn't know why she ever bothered to marry him. She made advances towards me which... I rejected. Further testimony came from Richard Richardson, in which he claimed that shortly before Monica's death, she was going to ask for a divorce settlement in the region of £25,000. However, after speaking to her father, it was suggested that this amount be doubled. Richardson alleged that Telling had been threatened by Monica that her family would take some form of retribution if she was ever hurt. Telling was often ordered to stay home while Monica went out. Richardson testified that after Monica was no longer around, Telling seemed more relaxed. He even bought himself some dogs, something his wife had forbidden him to do. Richardson spoke about how he witnessed Telling picking up one of the dogs, which was a puppy at the time, and cradling it with tears in his eyes.
Michael Telling's mother, Joyce Strong, took the stand. She gave evidence. Telling became upset. The court was forced to adjourn briefly after he had passed a note to his counsel which read, You get my mum away from this awful trial, or I will get up and let the bloody prosecutor hear what I think of him. The history of Michael Telling's troubled childhood was recounted to the court by Alan Rawley QC. Born on May 17, 1950, Telling was raised in England by Mother Joyce and Father Henry. Joyce Strong told the court that her first husband was a violent drunk. On one occasion, he chased his heavily pregnant wife around the house with a sword. The marriage lasted four years, with the divorce taking place when Michael was three years old. Joyce was granted custody. She described her son's childhood as being starved of affection and love. Telling ran naked into traffic, smashed up rooms in the house, bit a relative's arm, threatened his mother with a knife, and he attacked the local vicar. He was packed off to boarding school. Telling was a troubled child who was expelled from two private schools for stealing and starting fires. He was punished by the principal, being struck with a table tennis bat. His cries could be heard by the other students. He was admitted as an inpatient at Maudsley Psychiatric Hospital in Camberwell, South London. He then left the UK behind and moved to Australia where his mother was living after she married an Australian diplomat during the 1960s. As Telling grew into a young man, there seemed to be little authority in his life and he could indulge in his desires as he received £1,200 a month through a trust fund from the Vesti family. He did not need to work, but still took employment in restaurants and briefly in a transformer factory. Telling could still not shake off his demons and tried to take his life several times. On one occasion, his actions left him hospitalised. During his late twenties, he met and later married Alison Weber in 1978. She was working as a waitress in Australia when they had crossed paths two years earlier. They settled in Torquay, a south coast county in Devon. The property was paid for by the Vesti Trust. Together they had a son, Matthew, though the couple divorced in November 1981. Telling often competed for his wife's affections despite her efforts trying to raise their son. While still married during October 1980, Telling had travelled to San Francisco to purchase a motorcycle. Through a chance meeting at some traffic lights, he met Monica's parents, Louis and Elsa Zumsteg. Telling and Louis Zumsteg had a shared love of motorbikes, which they just so happened to be riding when Telling asked Zumsteg where the best place to park was. With Louis's wife Elsa on the back of the motorcycle the Zumstegs were riding, the three got chatting, and eventually the Zumstegs offered to give Telling a tour of Santa Rosa where they lived. Enamoured by the man, Louis and Elsa offered Telling a place to stay. They could tell he was wealthy, as he was free with his money, but he spoke little about his job. 
telling mention something about the Australian army, serving in Vietnam and being on a leave of absence. But little by little, they gleaned more information. One day he casually remarked that his work was confidential and he could not talk about it as it was covered by the Official Secrets Act. He did not keep his secret long and told his new friends he was a government operative who had been working in Iran. Although they wanted to learn more about their English friend, Louis Zumsteg was due to leave California for a business trip. Hence, they offered that their daughter could perhaps give Telling a tour of the local area if he was still going to be hanging around. The Englishman abroad subsequently met their daughter, who at the time was working in a senior management position for a computer processing firm in Sacramento. While it took a while for her to warm to him, Monica was won over after being showered with gifts. Jewellery, flowers, champagne nights away at expensive hotels, and later, a new car. Telling spoke of his past, operating in the SAS behind enemy lines, sometimes working with MI6. After only a few weeks, Telling asked for Monica's hand in marriage. He bought her an emerald engagement ring, and things seemed too good to be true. Telling persuaded Monica to quit her job and move to England. She had recently been offered a promotion, so there were pangs of regret about what she had worked so hard for. But she decided to put her husband-to-be first. They settled in the town of rural Tunbridge Wells in Kent. Telling told his fiancée that he was needed in London and so would travel there each day. Although alone... Making friends came easy to Monica, so she rarely found herself at a loose end. However, the struggles of a young couple, one being far from home and the other often out, were also making themselves known. Monica thought her fiancé's moods were down to the pressure of his job and his health struggles to manage his diabetes. Still, she was finding his behaviour challenging to deal with. While on a lunch out with Telling's cousin, Monica came to learn that not only did Telling have a son, but he was still married. In another bombshell, she found out he also did not work for the government. In fact, he didn't have a job. When he was supposedly on missions with the SAS, he was seeing his son and wife. Monica was unsure what to do. Telling explained that he was an heir to an absurdly wealthy family. This part was at least true. He lived off an inheritance he was receiving from a trust fund. When the couple told Monica's parents, they weren't pleased that Telling had lied, but Monica had found someone that appeared to make her happy. Telling explained he had many fair-weather friends, and did not often reveal who he truly was, as he did not want people to take advantage of him. This admission coincidentally coincided with Louis Zumsteg's fight with alcohol, a battle he was firmly winning. At the time, he believed in forgiveness, and so told his daughter to give Telling another chance. So she did. 
as Telling's divorce from his first wife Alison was being finalised, Monica learned the wider Vesti family traditions. She also met with representatives of the family who would be taking care of their every need. The money seemed to be endless. First class travel, with a move on the cards from Tunbridge Wells. They could live anywhere they wanted. The only stipulation... Monica was required to sign a prenuptial agreement so she could lay no claim to any of the family's fortune. Something that Telling's previous wife did not have to do. She was given a house in Devon and a lifetime allowance, although Alison was raising Telling's child after all. The couple soon found their dream home, Lambourne House near West Wickham a village that is predominantly managed by the National Trust, who seek to protect the historic character of locations throughout Great Britain. Few knew that this dream home would later be the scene of something that came straight out of a nightmare. With more free time, Monica was making changes to their home. She was trying to make some positive changes to her future husband too. Some better clothes, a new haircut, and perhaps he could find a job, something he enjoyed. But again, fractures began to appear. Monica had come to learn that Telling needed support. He had told Monica about his difficult childhood, which was having implications later in life. Also, his lies and boasts to others were getting out of control. In turn, Monica began to drink more and more and started to smoke marijuana. Regardless, they were trying to make things work. They married at the end of November 1981 at a registry office in High Wycombe. A brief affair, over in ten minutes, witnessed by family and friends who had travelled halfway around the world. After they married... Telling occasionally visited a psychiatrist, although more often than not he was lying to his wife about his attendance. He rarely went. A friend David Wallace was later interviewed about how Monica demanded her husband to see a doctor after he returned from a stay abroad, but he refused. Michael would phone Monica and... He was talking to her in general, I don't know what he was talking about, but he turned around and said that I'm going to be home on the next flight. And she said, oh, well, that means he'll be due back Monday. So after that, we put the phone down. He rang again in the morning to speak to us. And Monica turned around and said, I want you to see a psychiatrist. And Michael turned around and said... They didn't really want to, and always said, and the other. So Monica said to me, will you have a word with Michael and say to him, if you come back to Great Britain, to the house, she'll only let you in if you see a psychiatrist. So I said that to Michael, and he turned around and said to me, I think that's between my wife and myself. So I left him. Things quickly took a darker turn when Monica realised that Telling's fascination with guns seemed to be increasing. He slept with a firearm by his bedside. 
This was followed by a particularly nasty argument that led to the first time Telling lashed out and struck his wife in the face. She fled to a ski resort in Austria before coming back to England. Telling apologised profusely. After a period of reconciliation, there were yet more arguments which resulted in Telling smashing some windows in the house and breaking the furniture. On another occasion, after the couple had been to a relative's wedding, Monica refused to go home, instead getting into a car that belonged to another partygoer. Irate, Telling drove his car into this other vehicle several times before driving back to Lambourne House and setting fire to some of Monica's possessions. Onlookers urged her to contact the police, as she was convinced her husband might return with a gun from his weapon collection. The emergency services were notified and arrested Telling, discovering his weapons and ammunition. Michael Telling was prosecuted, and his firearms collection was confiscated in July 1982. He was not handed a jail term, but ordered to pay a fine of £6,000. In the lead-up to what he thought would be a prison sentence, Telling tried to commit suicide. One night after Monica had been drinking, she passed out, and while she was asleep, Telling swallowed a large number of pills and penned a suicide note. When Monica awoke and notified the emergency services, her husband was rushed to the hospital. As Telling slowly came out of his coma, he continued arguing with his wife. A member of staff made notes about what happened. A psychiatrist who treated Telling seemed more interested in his patient's wife. He described Monica as a young, vociferous, obnoxious American who was drunk and swigging at a whiskey flask during our interview. Telling returned home and again vandalised the house and threatened to end his wife's life. This all proved too much. Monica yearned for home and her addiction to alcohol was getting the better of her. She booked a ticket back to America, although she was heavily intoxicated before the plane had even got off the ground. When she awoke with an awful hangover, She was unsure of where she was and found herself strapped to a bed in a psychiatric ward of a Boston hospital. After boarding a connecting flight home to California via Boston, the authorities were alerted to an incredibly drunk woman who was taken into custody. Monica could recall little of what happened. She returned to her parents and sought treatment in America. Her husband sent letters pleading for his wife to return home and tried to prove to Monica that he could change. Telling submitted himself for treatment at St Andrews, a psychiatric hospital in Northampton. Monica also made efforts to curb her drinking, going to AA meetings. As her father was also a recovering alcoholic, he spoke to his daughter about what she was going to do. Telling had mental health problems and begged for someone to support him. Louis Zumsteg thought Telling's lies were just a consequence of a difficult childhood. Monica decided to stay, and after she reconciled with her husband, there was a ray of sunshine when she found out she was pregnant. This didn't last long, however, as only weeks later she lost the baby, 
which prompted yet more violent arguments between the pair. It seemed Helling's therapy had done little to alleviate the dark clouds that hung over him, and Monica was still fighting against her addictions and started to drink again. Their marriage limped on until the start of March 1983, when they decided to divorce. Telling left for Australia to visit his mother, while Monica would be staying in England just for a few weeks to undergo some dental surgery to treat a gum infection. As soon as she was able, she would be travelling back to her parents in California. But again, history repeated itself. Telling apologised, the two reconciled, and he returned from Australia. They decided to stay at the Hyde Park Hotel, a place they had visited after their wedding. Monica went for her dental surgery, and then on March 29, 1983, mysteriously, she disappeared. Telling had told his friends that Monica had left him for good. They were unaware that after another argument using a rifle, Telling had ended his wife's life and hidden her body in the summer house. After Monica's remains were recovered, experts were able to confirm her identity, as it was evident that the victim had suffered the same gum infection and had recently undergone a similar surgery to treat the problem. Michael Telling claimed that he was not responsible for his actions, as along with an abnormality of mind, he alleged it was his wife's behaviour that drove him to do what he did. But the problem was Telling had a habit of twisting the truth or lying. It made it extremely difficult to unravel an accurate account of what truly happened. This is the end of episode 45. To hear more about the crimes of Michael Telling, the trial and the outcome of the case, please tune in next week. Thank you for listening and special thanks to our Patreon supporters. To keep up to date with news on the podcast, you can find us on social media through Twitter, Facebook and Instagram. For ad-free versions of our episodes which are posted a few days before their general release, visit patreon.com forward slash they walk among us information on this episode can be found in the show notes or on our website they walk among us podcast.com Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. 
I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.